0: Saanich Land could be, like, something that the library does to tell you what community events are happening. Yeah, Sorry, Saanich Library System. <laughs> <laughs> it's the GBPL. We're, taking, we're stealing their thunder.
1: This is Saanich Land with Dean Murdoch and Naomi Devine. Hey, Dean. Hey, Naomi. Hey, how's it
0: going? I hear you're running for mayor.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm running for mayor of Saanich. You know, I I used to be on council for 10 years, and uh, after a little bit of time away, I decided to throw my name into the, I guess you throw your hat into the ring, right? My name is maybe in the hat that goes into the ring. I don't really know how that works, actually. Uh, Either way, my hat's going to be in the ring for mayor.
0: Well, I think that's fantastic, and I think we should do something um, in order to help with that.
1: Oh, I love it. What what do you think we should do?
0: Uh, should we start a podcast?
1: Well, I do love podcasts.
0: <laughs> I know you might have a little bit of experience when it comes to this, don't you?
1: I I used to do one. Yeah. Um, which was a lot of fun, and I've handed it off to someone an excellent person named Michelle Seely who's who's now running amazing places. Um, but I've kind of missed the chance to do a podcast. So, A podcast about the campaign sounds about right to me.
0: Wonderful. Well, perfect timing. What do you think a good topic would be to start this podcast?
1: Well, you know, the thing that we probably hear the most about is housing. Housing affordability is probably a good one to start with.
0: Love it. Hot topic, something everyone's going to be interested in. So what do you say we start um, this off with a territorial acknowledgement?
1: We acknowledge and respect the Lekwungen peoples on whose traditional territories we are broadcasting from today, the Songhees, Esquimalt and Wasanich peoples whose historical relationship with the land continues to this day. Maybe we should introduce ourselves? Great idea. I'm Dean Murdoch, I'm a mayoral candidate and a resident of Saanich.
0: And I'm Naomi Devine, and I think I'm going to be your campaign manager. How does that sound?
1: Oh, did we just confirm it in the podcast, the first episode of the podcast? I love it.
0: I believe we did.
1: All right. You heard it, you heard it here first, so now it's, you're locked in now. We can't, we can't go back and edit it out.
0: <laughs> right. Oh, no. What have I done? <laughs> well, I'm
1: delighted. I'm going to spend the rest of this episode with a big smile on my face now.
0: Oh, that's so kind of you to say. (laughs) I think we're going to have a great time um, in this campaign. And we have a great guest today, don't we?
1: We do have a great guest, yeah.
0: Leo Spalteholz, who is a volunteer housing analyst with Homes for Living, YYJ. Is that correct?
1: That's it, yeah.
0: Um, And yeah, Leo lives with his family um, in Saanich and has been analyzing the Victoria real estate market since 2010. So we're talking to somebody who's deeply invested in this topic.
1: This is someone who knows his stuff about housing, for sure.
0: He certainly does. And I learned a lot in this conversation and I think our listeners are going to as well. So without further ado, let's get into our chat with Leo. Okay. So Leo, before we get into the um, housing affordability discussion, we've got a more important question to ask, and that's that's this: Where do you fall in the cake versus pie debate?
2: Oh, definitely pie. Oh, <laughs> oh. yeah. It, oh. Here's here's the reason: There's no such thing as a bad pie, but there's definitely a bad cake. So, oh, if, I, if I don't have any control over the quality, I'll give me a pie any day.
0: Couldn't agree more. Oh, oh, what do yeah. we do now?
1: We're off to a <laughs> rough start here,
2: Leo. I don't know. <laughs> and that's blasphemy because i'm from germany so like a you know like a black forest cake classic you know tort would be great but i i gotta say i've been i've been convinced by the pies
0: you've been convinced by the pies is there a favorite pie that you have then
2: apple pie yeah yeah my wife hates it but (laughs) i'll I'll get one every time every time i see one and save on
1: really (laughs) That's really like that's a that is a solid Middle America choice right there. Apple pie, that's You're, right. Uh, I lo- well, you know, I I do enjoy I enjoy desserts, and so I can't disagree. If somebody offered me apple pie, I probably would have a slice. But I I gotta say I'm I think I'm more of a cake guy. I, I I'm I'm I like cake. Naomi, what what's your take?
0: Oh, cake all the way! Like there's.
2: There's a definite right answer to this question. And it's cake. So, uh. <laughs> I can see I'm a one-time guest on uh, your <laughs> <That's> right. You've <laughs> already, already on the wrong side of history, of the election issues.
1: Well, we're going to just abandon the rest of this episode now and just tell you why you're wrong about apple pie. That's uh, going to yeah. be the focus of this discussion from this point on. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So thanks so much, Leo, for coming. We appreciate your time. <laughs> yeah, <pleasure>. That's right. <laughs> that's now <laughs>
1: um Well, I, I'm excited to have you here, Leo uh, because uh, well you, you and I've had the chance to chat before uh, and when I had a, a, in a different uh, podcasting life you were a guest a couple of times very gracious to offer your perspective. so I'm thrilled uh, that you're willing to to come back and, and offer your expertise, impart some wisdom to us here Um you know, one of the things we hear a lot about is uh, up-zoning and pre-zoning. Um, it, it I, I hear it from folks on the doorstep. I hear it from uh, people in the development community. I hear it from uh, affordable housing uh, advocates. So w- could you break it down for us? What is pre-zoning?
2: Yeah, I think it's fundamentally something that has really just come up in the conversation I would say in the last couple years, um, not something that we heard a lot about before then. But fundamentally, I think the reason why people are talking about it now is because there's this broader understanding that whatever the current system is, it's quite broken on the housing front. Right. And I think the pandemic really drove that home for everyone. Um, you know, I think the was just looking at the figures for the median house in Saanich and it was at 1.36 million for January and February, so this year. And that's up nearly half a million dollars from where it was just two years ago. And, you know, looking back even further, I mean, we have some of our main planning documents, like our official community plans, are from 2008. And back then, houses were about $500,000, right? Mm-hmm. So I think people are really realizing that, wow, this is no longer affordable for um you know most families right I mean who's got three hundred thousand dollars lying around for a down payment and then can pay a one million dollar mortgage right um you know I often challenge people if you own a house and we own a house in Saanich you know could you afford your own house today? Mm-hmm. And you know look at your assessment you know add 25-30% and you know could you could you buy that house um at today's price? And I think for a lot of people, it just, uh, you know, it's impossible now. And yet we look at the land in Saanich, and the vast majority of it is reserved exclusively for single family homes, right? So that just doesn't quite match up um, to sort of reality, economic reality anymore. So the idea behind the broad up zoning is okay, instead of saying, you know, waiting for a developer to come and say, you know, can I build an apartment here or can I build a few townhouses here instead of this single family house? Just say, let's take a broad area and say, let's allow the next step of housing on these by right. So you can say, okay, in a single family zone, for example, you might allow a duplex or a triplex. Um, So if somebody has an old house that needs to be replaced their only option is no longer to build a mega mansion you know they can they can put up a couple townhouses or or something that would then be more affordable but still suitable for families right. and at the same time you know you could you could say in some of our centers we have done all this planning work to figure out you know in the official community plan where do we want the density we want it in the centers and so the idea behind the upzoning would be to say okay let's let's make it happen right we all agree, as a community, that's where we want density. Let's match the zoning to that so people can get to work and build those build those homes for people.
0: So is it fair to say this is a fast-tracking way to get the different types of housing that a community may or may not need?
2: Yeah, that's right. And I think it's um, responding and respecting the community input that goes into things like the Official Community Plan where there is quite a lot of effort put into, you know, I would say our our official community plan for Saanich is somewhat out of date at this point. You know, like I said, it's from 2008, but there were a lot of people that put a lot of time and consultation and, and research into developing that plan. And that's where it says, you know, this is the type of growth we wanna see. We wanna see density around those centers and corridors. And we want to make some room for, you know, some infill gentle density in single family zones, for example, duplexes, triplexes, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I find that there's a gap often that happens between what's set out in the OCP, you know, or official community plan. And then what actually happens, you know, as each development application, you know, comes forward. And that's where a lot of, of course, discussion can happen. And I think sometimes residents are left with the question of is the OCP being followed? How much of the direction is actually being realized? And Dean, from your time as a counselor, would you say that's a fair way to characterize how that happens?
1: I think that that's often the conflict that occurs in, in when you're contemplating a change in land use or, or permitting a higher level of density, that there is that, the reality of what the OCP anticipates or what it says is going to be allowed that often butts up against an older local area plan for that particular neighborhood, depending on when it was last updated. And then it butts up against the lived experience of the folks who've been in that neighborhood for a number of years um, that settled, purchased their home and settled in that neighborhood probably a decade ago or maybe more. Uh, and and these kinds of significant changes uh, in terms of density um, are a big departure from what they're used to. And so mm-hmm. I think that that's the, the conflict that's inherent in the land use decision that it, it's a transformation. It's managing that change and the OCP is attempting to predict what that change is going to look like. But it it often it falls to the council to make that decision on exactly how that change is going to take place.
2: Right. Yeah, and I think the there's something interesting there, and we often see people in, for example, public hearings saying, well, this is not what is matching the OCP. And I think one of the reasons that we see a lot of that is there really isn't that much advantage for a developer to build to the OCP right now. You know, if they build something that matches the OCP they still have to go through rezoning they still have to go through that whole process they're still going to get objection from you know neighbors for example and so often they're just trying to okay well let's you know if the ocp is not giving us any advantage let's go for as tall as we think we can get approved right with yeah. something like pre-zoning you're actually giving developers a faster path if they build to the ocp Right. So now there's a real advantage to say, hey, you know, the OCP envisions six stories. I can start building that, you know, basically tomorrow I can go straight for the building permit. If I want to go for 12 stories, I got to go through rezoning. Right. And it may push more development to say, OK, let's take the easy path. Let's just build what we're already allowed to build. And the problem is right now, you know, really, there's no pre-zoning. So um, the, the only thing they're allowed to build is what's already on site and sometimes not even that.
1: So it, it could, if the pre-zoning followed the language of the OCP, um, it could create a predictability of what you were going to get uh, for both the developer and then also for the community, that if it was in line with the language of the OCP that talks about, you know, six stories, for example, and, you know, we're talking about six stories on a major corridor in a major center not six stories in the center of a residential neighborhood Um, when if that pre-zoning followed that then you would know exactly what you were going to get and to leo's point you wouldn't then have to go through a process where you're trying to vary what that looks like by saying i want to do 10 or 12 stories instead
0: Mm -hmm. so yeah it sounds like it could bring a lot of certainty um, to this conversation you know that we see happening municipality Uh, through municipality um i'm interested though in going back to something you said earlier which was the question of asking your friends who own homes could they own their home now um are you you thinking that should be one i want to know have you actually asked any of your friends and then two do you think this is a good question we should be asking at parties as we um, are able to sort of (laughs) (laughs) i
2: I don't know if it's going to make you too many friends at parties but (laughs) i I think it's (laughs) it's interesting because you know, once you have a home, often, you know, people are not necessarily in touch with what's going on out there with prices right now and sort of the struggle of people that are not yet housed. Right. I mean, we were really lucky, my, my family and, and I, you know, we were able to buy um, eight, nine years ago when prices were less than half of what they were today and so we, we're often just kind of very thankful of that timing right but then very cognizant of you know what about the people that are we're not that lucky right and they're just they came along a little bit later than us and now you know rates runs sorry rents are up um you know by a substantial amount and home prices are just completely out of reach
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's very true luck is a major factor um right now in the market that I think is a topic of um, conversation for a lot of people. Um, It sounds to me though, like pre-zoning or upzoning is a really interesting topic or potential tool um, that could do a lot of good. And I'm wondering, does it happen successfully anywhere else?
2: Yeah, we've seen it happen in a few different jurisdictions now. And it's really just been in the last year, like I mentioned, where suddenly this has come up in, in many different areas. I think part of the reason is that A lot of jurisdictions and countries have been fighting with high home prices for a long, long time, and they've tried so many different things in terms of, you know, we've seen things in BC, like, you know, the speculation and vacancy tax and the foreign buyers tax and the mortgage stress test and all those things did help, but they only helped for a short time. And so now people are looking at okay, well, you know, we just don't have enough homes out there. And so most recently, the prominent ones are New Zealand, just passed some reform uh, last year, where they basically said okay, cities can no longer restrict pe- people from building up to three homes on each lot. And then they said okay, you know, in areas near transit, in denser cities, you know, you cannot restrict it lower than six stories. Right. And I think they had that same issue that, you know, it just the current system just wasn't meeting the needs. There wasn't enough homes being built. And we just saw the exact same thing in California, where they allowed statewide in every city up to four homes on every lot. So something like a like a multiplex, like a, a quadplex. Right.
1: One of the things I've heard in response to the push to pre-zone is that it's just a windfall for existing property owners, that they're gonna see the value of their, the property that they've already purchased uh, go up extraordinarily as a result of the potential for, for higher density on the lot. So is it true that this would just amount to a, to a giveaway to those existing landowners? Are we, are we really getting any farther ahead in terms of affordability?
2: yeah i would say it depends right i think first we have to recognize that the current system is really a giveaway to landowners um if we look at you know what prices are doing now they are going up um you know several percent a month right now at this rate so you know i think that that ship has kind of sailed like we have that that system in place right now and it's true that I think a lot of people have this misconception that it's just gonna boost land values because they see what happens when we rezone one lot. And when we rezone just one lot, we go through this long process and say, hey, we would like to turn this um, single family lot or two lots into an apartment building. Then absolutely, yeah, the land values shoot up, right? Because now we can build a lot more homes on that one piece of land, Mm -hmm. but actually the land value per home goes down. And I mean we know this because you know the simple fact is that townhouses are cheaper than houses and apartments are are cheaper than than townhouses again right mm-hmm. and if we look at some of the research that's been done in the area of broad upzoning it's really not the same as upzoning just one lot at a time because there's only so much development capacity out there so the reason that those land values are really high, if if those density lots are rare, is because that's the only place that people can build those denser forms of housing. But if we say, okay, um, you know, you can put a tri- triplex anywhere um, on on a formerly single family home lot, then there's lots of options, right? And so then that that scarcity is gone, and that the development capacity gets spread out over a large area. Right. So generally, if you broad up zone as broadly as possible, that minimizes kind of any kind of increase in the landlift. It's also possible. So, what um, Vancouver is investigating right now, they have this making home proposal and where they're looking at, okay, can we allow up to six homes uh, on a single family lot? And what they're proposing is charging a fee to capture some of that landlift so they're saying okay look we recognize we're only upzoning you know a relatively small area we think there's going to be some landlift we're going to charge a fee and we're going to take that money and put it into affordable housing so mm-hmm. that it's not all going to the existing landowners
1: and so that fee gets collected at the time of of redevelopment so it's not because presumably like the land gets rezoned regardless of what the homeowner or property owner does but when they go to actually utilize that new density allowance and they take out a development permit they're gonna the city will then pull that fee uh because you know what goes along with that is they're going to sell those other units or rent those other units uh at a much higher rate than what they would have just had for their single family home
2: that's right yeah and they're still doing the research so i think the exact mechanism is not set yet but that's how i understand it yeah so whether it's attached to the building permit or something else there will be a time point where that fee can get collected, and there would be something built into you know the mechanism that that fee can be reevaluated, right? We can they can look at well, what's the uptake? Is the fee too high? Is it too low? Um, and kind of ju- adjust it over time.
1: I really like the idea that they're going to use it to help offset affordable housing costs that, you know, it's not just going to be a windfall for the city that suddenly they're going to collect this revenue as a sort of, you know, break on the um, sudden, you know, housing boom that might take place as a result, but they're going to redirect that funding towards affordable housing. So that then you can create new housing that is also accessible to other folks who wouldn't be able to just buy it or rent it at market rates. So, it, yeah, it does... and I
2: think, that's, you know, it's quite important to focus a lot of the city's energy on the below market and um, non-market housing side, because upzoning can get basically what we're doing with upzoning is is allowing the market to build what people are willing to buy right now, right? Things like townhouses and then things like you know apartments and and condos near um transit and corridors and things like that. But non-market sort of targeted affordable housing is not going to build itself, right? Mm-hmm. So upzoning can absolutely help there too, right? Because nonprofit developers struggle with the same rezoning process as anybody else, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we see that they're, they're calling for fast tracking on the zoning side and pre-zoning, um, but that's where it's also helpful to have the city take a more active role in actually delivering that affordable housing, whether it's by providing land, whether it's providing actual dollars, right? or whether it's providing things like bonus density, um, where it might be that, you know, uh, you know, it's a, a for-profit developer making, you know, a condo development can go to a certain height, but if it's a nonprofit or if it's affordable housing, then we can go a little bit higher, right? We're basically giving away a bit of extra density to make that nonprofit housing more feasible to build.
1: Yeah. And if if the development consisted of a mix of um, below market and market housing, then density bonusing is a mechanism to try and help with those pro forma costs so you can actually get a lower rate on those additional
2: units. That's right. And I think a big thing there is just the certainty. I mean, what I hear from affordable housing developers is that it's so difficult to juggle the funding sources, you know, the CRD, the city, the province, the feds, you know, everybody's got slightly different requirements and then everybody's got timelines to their funding and time limits. And so it would be a massive help to say, okay, look, we know we can build this, you know, six floors by by transit or in a village, and and that helps us a ton on the certainty, lining up all the funding and sort of keeping all the balls in the air and actually getting it built. You know, we've seen some developments that actually went through, I don't think it was here, it was in Vancouver, that actually went through. But by the time they got their rezoning permission, you know, the timelines for their funding had run out and they had to cancel the whole thing, even though it would have been approved at at council.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Um, Thinking through, too, like, let's say we have a council that's supportive of this. Um, Can you walk us through then what happens to existing uh, single-family neighborhoods, for example?
2: Well, I think that's where we would look at the OCP, right? Nobody is proposing, okay, let's, you know, allow somebody to put up a 12-story apartment building in the middle of a single-family neighborhood. That's where we would look at the official community plan and say, okay, what is envisioned for those neighborhoods? um in the official community plan and usually there's that kind of gentle infill like duplexes for example or or you know some townhouses i think there's certainly an argument to be made because our official community plan in saanich is so out of date that it should also be updated to reflect the current needs um, from a housing perspective but that's a you know what would really drive to what extent would the upzoning happen well where did we all agree that we want to see growth, right? We want to see a gentle density in single-family neighborhoods, and then we want to see more density and more development near those villages and corridors.
1: I, I think that's a really important point, Leo, that you know we need to make sure we're following the community plan that we've agreed on in terms of how we're going to manage that growth like you know Saanich is quite proud of its urban containment boundary which is designed to try and keep its growth out of the rural uh, rural area and, and farmlands and, and concentrated around places where people have good access to transit and active transportation where they can walk the services uh, schools and uh, jobs the last thing we'd wanna do then is just open up the zoning in every place to say, okay, now just build wherever you want. Uh, it's gotta happen in a way that, that makes sense. We don't wanna to return to 1980 style car dependent development. We wanna make sure that we're, we're building kind of a, a coherent model of growth. And even when it comes to gentle density that we're not packing neighborhoods full of more car dependent homeowners, uh, but that we're we're doing this in a mindful way, where we know that people are going to be within walking distance to the bus. They're in walking distance to schools, um, and and ideally the you know the corner the corner store, the coffee shop, uh, places where people can get around and and not further congest our streets and contribute to our greenhouse gas emissions.
2: Yeah, and I think something to consider there is, I mean, right now. Um, because the core municipalities, and Sandwich, being one of them, have been growing quite slowly. I mean, we just saw the growth numbers again. And because the the housing is not being created, you know, where are people going? They're going out to Langford because Mm -hmm. that's the only place they can find a place to live, right? So... If we want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions of the entire region, we do have to let people live, you know, closer to where they work and and where they go to school and things like that. And, you know, many of those things happen in Saanich. Right. And unfortunately, people are being pushed out further and further, despite them wanting to stay in Saanich. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, too. You know, I, I totally understand people that say, hey, I I you know, bought into this neighborhood. I, I like it the way it is. I don't want anything to change. But, you know, it, it's something interesting that the more you kind of try to keep an, an iron grip on a neighborhood and keep it the same, it will change out from underneath you. Right. And I think just because of the prices right now. You know, when when everything is 1.2, 1.3, 1.4 million dollars, you know, it it will change the character of who's buying into that neighborhood. And eventually, you know, you you if uh, uh, say an older house or a smaller house is you know four hundred, five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars, that somebody might buy that and live in that house, right? But if someone's buying that for $1.5 million, they're probably not going to want to live in that older, you know, smaller house. They're probably going to tear it down and build the biggest house that they can. And that's what we're seeing. It's kind of interesting. This was actually called out in the Oak Bay official community plan. And they said, look, a lot of these houses are going to get torn down because, um, you know, people are going to buy them for large amounts. They're not going to want to live in those older wartime houses. The neighborhood is going to change. And so I think what we want to do is enable families to, you know, recognize there will be some change and then enable families to keep living in the neighborhoods that they're currently living in, not force them out.
1: I This really resonated, this point you're making really resonated with me recently. I, I did a walk uh, with the president of the community association over in the Cary neighborhood. And she pointed out to me that the, there were two Construction projects going on on the same street. One was on a corner where the homeowner, property owner, had to go through a rezoning re- in order to create a duplex zone. And they were just starting construction. And then, about three houses down, somebody had torn down a single family home and were replacing it with a larger single, single family home that would also have a garden suite in the back. And she said, This corner lot that went through the rezoning to create a duplex started that process 18 months ago and they've just poured concrete now and this house down the street that by rights was able to do a single family uh, rebuild without having to do any kind of rezoning started that process less than six months ago and they had already framed that that new home they were framing the garden suite in the back and so it, it really struck me that even though we're you know we're not contemplating a significant increase in density we're just turning one house into two in a duplex Mm. it set that person back over a year compared to someone who just because they only wanted to do a single larger single family home was able to just go ahead without any of the additional regulatory or approval processes
2: yeah And actually, it was, you know, that reminds me, I was listening to a Saanich council meeting where same thing, right? There was a single family home being turned into a duplex and not a single neighbor was in opposition. There was a couple people in support. It was a unanimous vote from council to approve it. And yet this took nearly two years. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, was kind of baffling and and how many hundreds and hundreds of hours of, you know, professional time and Saanich staff time goes into a process which, you know, everybody agrees that we want. And I think we, we do have to be cognizant of city resources are limited. And I would love all of that city effort to be going into uh, creating affordable housing instead of spending two years talking about a duplex that everybody agrees is, is fine. Right. You know, if we if we're all agree that that duplex is fine, let's just make it happen. Let's allow it.
0: Yeah, I think this is the kind of common sense that people talk about, you know, too, when we're looking at like the affordability crisis that we face, is that you know, why would we spend two years on that when that's that's an obvious yes. Um, but how do we how do we scale this? And it sounds like up zoning or pre zoning is is really, I think, a significant tool, you know, in advancing that.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's some kind of fundamental fundamental reform is needed because you know even if council says yes to every one of these asks, there are simply not enough hours in the day to make mm-hmm. a dent in mm-hmm. the homes that we need, right? So I think we got to say, okay, let's let's spend that valuable council time and and city staff time on bigger projects that you know may not fit into a certain mold, where really is debatable. You know, should we allow this or should we not allow this, rather than things that you know the community already agrees we want.
0: That's a great point. Is there anything else that you want to um, stress about up zoning um, or pre zoning that we haven't talked about so far?
2: Um I think you know we talked about it a little bit this kind of connection to the you know non-market and affordable housing sector. Now what really struck me there was a story recently in the news about a Saanich family that was at risk of homelessness because they just couldn't find a rental property and it said their their budget was $2300 a month which is not at all cheap for rent right? I mean that's a sizable chunk of rent that's more than we paid for renting a house eight Mm -hmm. years um and it was just amazing that you know this is a family that a they were at risk of homelessness or they would have been dependent on non-market or or social housing or affordable housing but they really shouldn't be I mean twenty three hundred dollars a month should be enough to find suitable housing in the city And I think it can be, but there's just been this really strict restriction to what kind of homes can be built. And so it it just kind of pushes more people into the social housing side, right? Where we already have a shortage and there's long wait lists to get into any kind of affordable housing or co-ops or anything like that. So, you know, it's all connected, right? It's not just about affordable housing versus market housing. It's all a continuum. And, you know, I think, In the past, we've spent a lot of time trying to figure out okay, well, how do we fix the issue quickly? And even though that in the pandemic house prices have really exploded, if you look back a long, long time, it's really been building for decades. You know, it's been not as obvious because, you know, previously when the prices doubled from 250,000 to 500,000, it was still not that much, right? But when they double again, suddenly, you know, the numbers really get eye popping. Um, But, you know, this is not a pandemic thing. You know, it's something that's been building since the 60s in Victoria with house prices going up, you know, kind of at unsustainable rates. And, you know, upzoning, it's not an overnight fix for sure, right? You know, things will slowly go on to a different, more sustainable trajectory. And there was a kind of interesting... Um analysis that was done in New Zealand, where they looked at, okay, all this upzoning that we did, is it going to actually help? And they said, um, yes, you know we based on this analysis, we think it's going to lead to more sustainable and more equitable uh, urban living. Um, but it'll take a while. They said, you know, uh, the difference will be small at first, noticeable within a decade, and enormous for the next generation. And that quote really resonated with me because, I mean, I'm thinking about my kids and I want them to have a chance to live in, in Saanich or in Victoria, right, in mm-hmm. the future.
0: Yeah, you know, that quote really resonates with me, but in the opposite way, when we took a look at the federal government, you know, and under Paul Martin, um, you know, almost retreating from affordable housing on the federal yeah. farm. it started small like that. And my generation is paying the price for this. Yeah. We are priced know that we're priced at the market for everybody you know not only of course dealing with the most vulnerable members of society but also you know people who are young and mid-career professionals can't you know afford to buy into this market for the for a large part and i see many of my friends talking about whether or not they leave and i think that would be such a loss for the region absolutely Um,
2: absolutely
0: yeah
1: yeah and you know i i think about we're a university town Like I I live in the Gordon Head area. I'm close to the university campus. Uh, We have a pop student population, sometimes upwards of 25,000 who come into Greater Victoria. Many of them try to settle in Saanich. And you think about the the, the talent, the skill set, the education and knowledge that those people have. And historically, people come to, to Victoria, they go to school, and they end up staying. They buy a home, they, they get jobs here, they contribute to the economy, they pay their taxes. And that's just not going to happen if people can't find a place to come and and rent while they're a student here and then be able to get into the market, even with you know, a, a professional income or a couple of professional incomes, they're getting locked out of the market. And, and what a significant loss that is to us uh, from a community perspective, from an economic perspective, and just in terms of the, the vibrancy of, uh, of the place that we're, we're trying to create. Um, you know, We really need to be finding ways to ensure that We can attract and keep those people here.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, I have learned a lot in this short time. Me too. Yeah. Thank you so
1: much. What a delight. Thank you very much, Leo. Really, uh, I had no doubt you would treat us to uh, another great uh, uh, explanation on these topics, but uh, it's always so great to get the chance to hear from you. So thank you for agreeing to stop by and chat with us.
2: Yeah, thank you, Dean. My pleasure.
0: Well, welcome to The Breakdown. This is the part of the podcast where we take a deeper look at what we just discussed with our guest and sort of bring any sort of additional facts and information into the conversation for you, the listeners. So here we go. Dean, pre-zoning. How do you think that conversation went with Leo?
1: You know, I always am so impressed with Leo. He's got He's so well researched, he's really under, understands the policies. And um, I think that, you know, he gave us some pretty clear examples of how pre-zoning or up-zoning work. So um, certainly, you know, it seems like it's a pretty compelling tool. I don't know how um, how well received it would be by some Saanich residents, but clearly it has an effect in, in creating uh, the possibility of more homes in neighborhoods and on our major corridors.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I, I liked how clear he was, um, and how he could tie things to relevant, you know, examples locally, you know, what would happen um, in single family, you know, home zoned areas, you know, sort of to begin with. Um, and of course, so timely, right? I mean, this is, as I mentioned at the beginning, like one of the hottest topics we could be
1: mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm
0: covering and uh and I think we're I think it'll be great to not only have Leo you know in the conversation but other housing experts um you know in the region hopefully join us um on the podcast because certainly is a um, a topic that probably needs more than one episode. Would you agree?
1: Oh I think so yeah no I think it's a complex problem and there are so many various types of solutions that can be applied so yeah I I look forward to the chance to chat with some other folks who can lend us the expertise and help us understand what might be effective to try.
0: Wonderful and like on the doorstep and from your previous time on Council have you been hearing pre-zoning or up zoning as a solution to the housing crisis or is this a newer topic?
1: well you know it's interesting like i don't think people are that familiar with a term like upzoning or pre-zoning but i have heard quite a few people talk about kind of that like the example that i mentioned in the carry area like you know where it's taken so long for somebody to be able to just do a subdivision uh or to do a um sorry not a subdivision to do a rezoning to get a duplex And that, you know, a house down the street that's just been rebuilt as a single family home happened in a matter of months. And so I think people kind of look at that and, you know, we need to be making these processes easier in order to create more homes. Um, I don't think anybody wants to see a six story building apartment building go up in their residential neighborhood, but I I have heard from places all over Saanich, you know, if it's in Cordova Bay or in the North Quadra area or Gordon Head, that, yeah, you know, some of these properties are certainly large enough to easily have another one or two units on them, which would create more housing for people. So I I do think that the idea is is out there, and I, I think generally people seem supportive of the idea that Saanich needs to make their processes easier to make these kinds of things happen.
0: Yeah and certainly I mean we're we're definitely at the spot where you know we need lots of we need to try lots of solutions I think and because let's get into some facts and figures just from the interview itself and uh, Leo mentioned in Saanich the median house price was 1.36 million I think you said for January 2020. Yeah that's up from 500,000, like up 500,000, sorry, from 2020. Isn't that incredible?
1: It's an unbelievable jump, a half million dollar jump in two years. Um, Yeah, I mean, just leaving so many people out of the market as potential home buyers. And, and, you know, along with that goes these ever increasing costs of rent. So, Um, Just how many people have been left out of housing over the course of two years as the market has just run away in in its value?
0: Yeah, exactly. So we see the value, you know, in uh, privately owned homes. And of course, Victoria, um, just of course adjacent to Saanich, um, is second in the country for highest rents at one bedroom averaging around $1,811 dollars. Vancouver's ahead around one thousand eight hundred and sixty some odd dollars, and then Toronto um, is in third, you know, sort of place. So that's making headlines at the beginning of twenty twenty two. Well, so homeowners, you know, seeing an increase in value; renters, seeing a really big jump in the in the cost of just that's one bedroom, right? Not what a family, you know, essentially would need um, as well. And and sort of Leo mentioned that one family, you know, having a budget of twenty three hundred dollars a month and were at risk of going homeless um, because they couldn't find anything within their, mm-hmm. you know, price, and that's a generous amount, you know, per month, you know, essentially to rent. But especially when you consider the median household income in Saanich, did you know it's seventy-seven thousand dollars?
1: Seventy-seven, and that's you know, that's a fairly high income compared to other communities around Greater Victoria. So it, you know, it's not a small amount of money per household, and yet when you match that up against these kinds of costs, it's just, uh, it's unfathomable. How can anybody possibly afford to buy a home?
0: Exactly. And if, you, if we take that 1.36 million as the median household cost with that median income, and we look at 20% and stick with us here, we'll, we'll do the math for you. What <laughs> the of 1.36 million is, do you have any guesses as to what that is Dean?
1: That has got to be uh, well over 200,000.
0: Yeah, you're right. Two hundred and seventy two thousand dollars.
1: Oh, my God. Oh, unbelievable.
0: Yeah. I mean, who's got that, you know, sort of lying around? And even if you are to go to the bank of mom and dad, as some millennials you know, are doing, that's still a huge chunk of change um, to need for for the for the recommended you know, amount of money to put down in a home. So if we were doing 5%, you know, which I believe is the, is the rate right now for first time home buyers on 1.36 million, it's $68,000.
1: Yeah, almost as much as the annual household income.
0: Exactly. And even if you were, um, you know, to secure, um, have that as a down payment and secure a mortgage at a, an interest rate of about 2.5%, guess how much your monthly mortgage payment would be?
1: On a $1.36 million property. Um, Yeah, yeah, that I, (laughs) my math isn't that strong, but I'm going to put that somewhere around $5,000.
0: About $5,800.
1: Holy cow, $5,800 a month.
0: Yeah. And so if you, if you even if you had one suite, you know, in an average home, you know, uh, which a lot of them sort of do here, um, and you're getting $1,800 a month on average for rent for one suite, you're still got a four thousand dollar a month mortgage to pay, four and that doesn't factor in that doesn't even factor in your property taxes, you know, and the other, of course, costs that come along with home ownership, too.
1: Yeah, and so you're, I mean, that's. Uh, probably nearly 100 percent of your of your household income right if you're making seventy-seven thousand a year you're probably somewhere around four to five thousand dollars a month in the bank
2: uh,
1: exactly. so most of that is going just to pay for your housing
0: yeah so so yeah the gap is real um and it's serious and uh yeah so glad we're glad we're talking about potential solutions we also talked about the essential community plan uh or an yes o- can you give us um, a politician's rundown of what the OCP
1: actually is? Uh, yes, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. Um, the official community plan is the guiding document for the community. It's the vision. Where do you want Saanich to be in 20 years? And so it sets out all of the broad policies that you will put in place to actually get there. What kind of, uh, where where do you want to do the parks? Where do you want green space? Where are you going to put... Uh, your shopping centers and your rec centers, and uh, what kinds of transportation choices are you going to set up for people to get around? It's the big vision for, for the community. And it really is sort of the the major enabler for all the other policy work that goes on in the municipality.
0: And would you say too it's something that the community has a fair amount of input in?
1: Yes, yeah, so, so when Saanich went through its official community plan, well, it was an update, but sort of a full redevelopment of its plan in 2008. Um, the consultation process w- went on for, I think it was something like 18 months before that document was finalized. Now that it's an older one now, as Leo said, that happened before I was even on council. Um, but um, yeah, it's definitely something where the public has had input and and I think continues to weigh in. Um, As each of these, you know, like the Shelburne Valley Action Plan and the Uptown Douglas uh, Action Plan, as each of those sort of come together, there's more public input that informs them and then they get nested underneath the official community plan.
0: And How hard is it to stick to the vision of the OCP once it is set, would you say, from sitting in the council seat? Well, I think
1: uh, this was one of the really interesting points that Leo raised that, you know, with pre zoning, it means that you do stick to the vision, like you go through that planning process with the community. And you say, like, let's use Shelburne, for example, we did this Shelburne Valley Action Plan that was nine years in the making, and we went through an extensive consultation process and finalized it. And pre zoning would then allow you to make sure that you actually put the zoning in place, you enabled the land use with the zoning that would animate the changes you you had discussed and agreed to in that action plan. So it really makes it much easier to stick to. It creates that element of certainty versus, you know, kind of the the current version of what we do is those plans get developed and then they sit on the shelf until a developer comes along and says, Well, I know you said you wanted six stories here, but I really want to do eight. And in order to do that, I'm prepared to incorporate a certain number of affordable units or maybe I'm going to build you a coffee shop that's a community amenity. Uh, And then, you know, things kind of get blown off track a little bit. They don't really stick to that original vision. And maybe that's not a bad thing. But if we're talking about predictability and, you know, having some certainty about what we're going to get, then... I do think that pre-zoning, particularly on those major corridors, is a way to ensure that we know exactly what we're going to get.
0: Yeah, and it's understandable. that There needs, of course, to be flexibility, but when it takes about an 18-month conversation to mm-hmm. have an OCD, understandable when the public says, hey, how, how do we even track how much of this we're sticking to versus how much we're, we're shifting, you know, and why. And so, you know, consistency and predictability can certainly help, I think, understanding the, the through line. Between where the OCP is and what actually is getting developed on the ground.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and you know the other thing is the pre-zoning allows these um, processes, these applications, to actually flow through much more quickly. Versus, you know, we saw that growth—an average single-family home has gone up in value half a million dollars in two years. Um, you know, the other thing that, that that means is that when a developer comes through to buy property. Uh, that they're paying a premium on those properties that isn't aligned with that plan because the plan was written five or 10 or 15 years ago. And so mm-hmm. those added costs have to be covered somehow. That's either going to happen with with more height, more density, or there's got to be some other kind of tradeoff that happens to offset those costs.
0: Mm-hmm. It's helpful decoding it that way, I think. Um, and we'll certainly hear from our listeners, too, if we've done a good enough job of making that make sense. I think that
1: that would be a good episode too. have somebody like that property appraiser to to talk about, you know, how, how do you make sense of development cost charges and, and what it takes in order to to put up an apartment building.
0: Definitely, I would, I would love for a property appraiser to come on and, and help explain that um, for us. So who knows, maybe we'll maybe we'll have someone who wants to come on. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned, um, we're getting down to real granularity here, pro forma, can you explain what pro forma means?
1: Yeah, pro forma is basically the the structural costs, the framework of costs that a developer looks at when they're building their new development. So understanding what it is they need in order to break even or make a profit and they can calculate that on a square footage basis.
0: Thank you, that's helpful. And Leo, you mentioned New Zealand and California as other jurisdictions that are seeing some success or implementing pre-zoning. Is there anywhere in Canada happening uh, where this is happening that you're aware of?
1: Well, I think um, I I know Ontario is looking at um, the options for pre-zoning in in the same way that New Zealand and California have done. Um, The city of Vancouver is looking at upzoning for... Uh, creating missing middle housing so sort of what Leo was talking about with adding you know where one property currently has one home they'd be eligible to have up to four Uh, that's something that the city of Vancouver is looking at Um, and of course Victoria is also doing its own missing middle strategy at the moment that may include something very similar so I don't know that there's anywhere in Canada that's actually gone ahead and done it, but it sure seems to be the thing that communities are are very interested in exploring right now.
0: Mm, that is interesting, and so if it's something that is appropriate for Sanich, could be an opportunity for leadership then?
1: It sure sounds like the province is interested in creating uh, conditions that will allow something like this to happen where um, you know the property owners will potentially have the option to turn one home into two or three or four homes um i it's unclear yet where david eby wants to take this conversation but uh, i think maybe where saanich needs to lead is ensuring that we're in the driver's seat that we're going to determine what those zones look like uh, before the province drops the hammer and just opens it up oh
0: fantastic So it sounds like there's like a lot more to discuss, but um, really interesting opportunities, uh, you know, on the table with this conversation. So definite to be continued.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So what do you think we should call this podcasting?
1: (laughs) You know, this is the thing that I've struggled with so much. Like what do we call it that kind of encapsulates everything that we want this campaign conversation to be all about and, why would anybody want to sit down and listen to the podcast? What name do we give it? So they go, oh, I'll check that out.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a challenge, you know, naming things. And I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to overthink. Um,
1: yeah. um, <laughs> well, I really liked Canada land. So I kind of thought maybe like Saanich land would be a fun way to describe what we're all about. Like what's going on in Saanich land?
0: I like it. I think uh and I think we shouldn't overthink it. I think Sainage Land sounds fine to me and uh be interested in and in hearing what the listeners think. Um we did get some early feedback that we'll play for you here. Sanichland could be like something that the library does to tell you what community events are happening. Yeah. What do you think about that? Um, you know, are we stealing the library's um, potential podcast name? I
1: unfortunately, we may be stealing the thunder of the library. I love the library, and maybe it is the name of something that they would give to a, an explainer podcast, but maybe that means we're on to something. Like this is actually going to be really informative in the same way the library wants to inform people.
0: true. that's, that's such a kind political answer. I'm just gonna say. Sorry, sandwich Library System. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: the GBPL. We're taking, Thank we're you. stealing
0: their thunder. We're stealing from the GBPL. Um, maybe we'll donate the name later on if it's popular. We <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> have in yeah. up listenership.
1: We're just going to get it started for them.
0: <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a much nicer way um, to think about it. Um, well, that's great. Sandwich Land it is, I say.
1: Let's do it. Sandwich Land.
0: OK. And um, thank you to everyone for listening. Um, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can email us at info at deanmurdoch.ca. Um, we will be happy to take your, um, your comments there, your suggestions. Who else would you like to see on this podcast? Um, and what topics would you like us to cover? Um, we are open to your feedback, so please send it in.
1: What's important in Saanich We will talk about it here on Saanich
0: <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> love, love, all the <laughs> use of the new name. <laughs> just gotta keep
1: keep using it until people are like, "Yeah, okay, I can accept that as the name for the podcast."
0: <laughs> awesome, Sandwichland it is. Sandwichland, uh, no exclamation point, just no, just, just the
1: word, just Sandwichland. Sandwich thank thank you, you, thank you for the first episode. Of the podcast.
0: Yeah, first episode of Sandage Land.
1: The first episode of Sandage Land. And hopefully not the last episode of
0: Sandage Land. Exactly. (laughs)
1: Grand single episode experiment.
0: (laughs) All right, take care, Dean.
1: You too, Naomi.